It's my great pleasure to welcome you to the Department for Social Policy and Intervention. And I'm very proud to be here to introduce Fran Bennett. Fran was one of the major reasons I came to join the department 10 years ago. Uh, and that was because Fran Bennett knows everything about much of social policy and particularly around social security issues. And my own areas of interest were very much that and around poverty. And I wanted to, to work alongside somebody who knew a lot more than I did. There are lots of people who know a lot more than I do, but there's not many people who know a lot more than Fran does. And Fran, Fran blends in her position, a rather unique position, as, as, as teaching fellow and research fellow here in the department. She blends two really important aspects of life. The first is, of course, scholarship, which is what we celebrate here in the university. A detailed understanding, a theorised understanding, a theorised account of the world in which we live. But she also lives in that world and engages with the policy process and in the politics. And it's, it's really important that, to not acknowledge that our country, Her Majesty the Queen even, acknowledged the importance of putting those two elements together when she was awarded an OBE at the uh, turn of this, this year for her services to, to social sciences. So we're in for a great talk, a talk which is about the black box. A black box we might already believe that we know everything about. Because every one of us in, in this room has experienced the inside of a family. But is your experience of the family the same as other people's? Fran is in a position to begin to help us to understand where our family fits in the broader scheme of families. Black boxes, over to you to unpack them. Thank you very much, Robert. This is always the problem in following the introduction by Robert because you don't know quite how to, uh, how to follow that, but thank you very much for what you said, Robert. Um, so I need to, I think, stand a bit sideways in order to not be in front of the screen. Is that all right? Okay. Um, so what I wanted to do today was to um, talk about uh, three areas of application of, uh, of academic uh, work, really. Um, one was um, the uh, overview, which we often do, which is to round up, if you like, what is known about a particular subject. Um, some people would call it a literature review, or you could call it a review article. And that's what I did, and I'm going to draw on that. And then the second thing I'm going to talk about is some qualitative research, which I did with a colleague um, into the same kind of area. <coughs> and the third thing I'm going to talk about is the application of that qualitative research to a particular uh, piece of policy, a government policy proposal. So that's the application of qualitative research to policy analysis, if you like. So it's three different kinds of academic work, which I thought might be interesting rather than just presenting one. Um, I'm not going to present it as, a, as an academic seminar in the kind of uh, way that we often do. Um, I'm just going to talk about what we did, really, and um, would hope that we would have time for um, a good discussion at the end of it. And that's partly because of what Robert said, which is that inside the black box of the family, 
uh, and I shall be talking mostly about resources within the family and how we handle those, um, is something that everybody identifies with in my experience. So you have friends round to supper and they say, what are you working on at the moment? So I say, oh, we've just been doing really interesting research interviewing men and women about how they handle money within the family. And you wouldn't believe what we found. It was so-and-so. And they say, we don't do it that way. <laughs> so it's something that people tend to be able to be interested in, uh, as Robert said, because we all come from families. Um, so this is the, the topic is inside the black box of the family. Um, I'll come in a minute to the blurb that we said, so to tell you what it's about. Uh, but this is just an overview of the, um, of the uh, lecture, which I won't go through, but you can see that there are the three bits um, that I just described in terms of uh, the three different areas of, of academic work. So this is the blurb that was sent out to you about this, uh, about this seminar. Well, perhaps it wasn't, perhaps that's why you're here. Um, but um, those of you who did read it, it said the family is often seen as one unit, sharing resources equally, with money being neutral, whatever its origin or purpose. But research suggests this is too simple. Receipt, control, management and expenditure of income are all shaped by gender roles and relationships, and of course by other influences. I'm going to be talking about gender roles and relationships in particular today because that's what we were researching. Um, but of course there are other influences which affect that as well and I would never pretend otherwise. So just to um, be clear about what we, um, uh, where this comes from, and I haven't littered the presentation with references, but um, the overview of the issue, which is what I mentioned at the start, um, was done for uh, an overview of a review article, if you like, of within household distribution, so distribution of resources within the household, for the Journal of Marriage and Family, which is a, a well-known US journal, particularly for um, family practitioners, really, people who work with families um, and academics who, uh, who study that. Um, and I also rewrote it for Family Focus, which is their more popular, if you like, magazine for family practitioners. Um, and then the um, qualitative research, which I'm going to talk about, um, was based with, on joint research with Dr. Sirin Sung, who was the uh, research officer on it and worked on it with me, um, in an ESRC project, Economic and Social Research Council Finance Project, on within household inequalities and public policy. And that was part of something called the Gender Equality Network, which had, um, which had about nine institutions and ten projects, or nine projects and ten institutions, I can't remember which. Um, and uh, that was what the um, project was part of. We unfortunately realised after a while that we had um, made the acronym WIP, uh, which is not a very good one for a gender project, really. Um, but uh, it was within household inequalities and public policy, so that's what it was meant to be about. Um, so this was the kind of background to, um, to what we were trying to look at um, within that project and within the overview. So the idea is that the family itself is, if you like, a unit of distribution, a unit of redistribution, um, of labour, uh, of time, uh, of income and other resources. And that's uh, a phrase taken in particular from uh, Ruth Lister, who's written about this. 
But it is actually quite problematic to research that because you have to open up the black box of family finances. So money comes into the household, money goes out of the household, but what happens to it in the middle there? And the black box, although it's been used by lots of people, I think was originally used by Jan Paul, who has done a lot of research in this area um, in 1989. So the traditional view of the family is that it is a unitary whole. Um, it shares resources to the benefit of all. And uh, Becker, in 1981, is one of the uh, people, an economist, who wrote about this in particular and talked about the altruistic head of the household uh, who ensured that um, the resources within the household were uh, shared to the equal benefit of all. He also talked about specialisation of gender roles uh, within that household to the benefit of the household as a whole. Um, so that means that we think only the overall household income matters for the individuals involved. It doesn't matter who brings it in, it doesn't matter what it is. It's just the overall household income total that matters in terms of the welfare of all the individual members of the household. And it was also seen that money was neutral. It didn't matter who brought it in, it didn't matter where it came from, it didn't matter whether it was from the state or the market or some other means. Um, it was a kind of neutral currency, if you like. A pound, wherever it came from and whoever it came to and however it was used, was a pound. And it just was the same value. But there developed an alternative perspective, particularly from the middle of the 20th century, who found those assumptions wanting, really. Um, and one thing that this alternative perspective argued um, on the basis of research was that, you, of course, you can benefit from living together. Of course, there are economies of scale. Of course, you share resources. Most people do. But sharing may be unequal. It may not be to the equal benefit of all. For example, a lot of parents ensure, particularly if they're on a low income, that their children benefit from resources more than they do. That's a very common finding in qualitative research <coughs> of low-income families. The other thing that was found, and Jan Paul in particular found this, was that the allocation system of resources within the household, and I'll talk a bit more about that later on, can shape who controls the money, who manages the money, and who spends the money. And how you decide to um, to manage and divvy up your money uh, can, of course, mean that the money reaches some people more than others or is dealt with in a particular way. And the other thing that was found was that the meanings and the value of money vary depending on its source, they can vary depending on who receives it, and they can vary depending on the purpose. So money is not necessarily neutral and each pound is equal to the same uh, to another pound. Um, and, for example, pin money earned by women was seen differently from the main uh, family breadwinner's wage quite often. And that alternative perspective was particularly important to women, and the reason for that was that women were more likely to be subsumed within the household unit. For example, you will probably know that um, women's income used to be treated as a husband's for tax purposes until relatively recently in modern times. So women were more likely to be subsumed within uh, the household unit. So it was particularly important to women. It wasn't just about women, I should emphasise, but it was particularly important to women uh, because of those legal uh, and traditional practices. So feminists from the mid-20th century onwards analysed how gendered roles and relationships and power structures uh, operating both inside and outside the household 
can shape the way in which couples arrange uh, their domestic means of getting, organising and spending money. That's what, that's what this body of research was about, really. And there were data from large-scale surveys as part of this, and there was also data from in-depth qualitative research, finding out in a more nuanced way, if you like, what the uh, big data from uh, large-scale surveys were finding. Now, this is uh, the one I mentioned, the overview uh, for the Journal of Marriage and Family, and a summary of that for the Family Focus magazine. Um, and I did that whilst I was action editor for a special issue of the Journal of Marriage and Family on within household distribution, which was linked to the research project that I told you about earlier on. So what did we talk about in this overview of this uh, area of research? Uh, well, first of all, about outcomes. So who gets what? And uh, the idea was uh, that the, the equal sharing assumption within households um, is traditional. So, um, we, for example, in the poverty uh, research, in poverty statistics, we assume the equal sharing of resources within households. And that's assumed on the basis of some sharing taking place and the fact that it's impossible to specify how households do share resources. So we assume equal sharing. And, for example, the poverty statistics are based on that. So what happened in this research was that analysts who were looking at this assessed the results of using different assumptions about that. So instead of assuming equal sharing, they assumed, for example, that couples shared nothing at all. And then they looked at what that did to household poverty, uh, to individual poverty and inequality. Or they assumed that couples just shared the costs of housing and children, but nothing else, for example. And then they looked at what that meant to poverty amongst individual men and individual women. Another way of looking at this was what was done by the National Equality Panel in 2010, which was they looked at income received by individuals themselves only. So all they assumed that individuals got was the, individual that was the income which they received as an individual. And the reason they did that was they assumed that there was more control over that income. That's slightly problematic, in my experience, in that just because you receive an income doesn't necessarily mean that you have control over it. And if you are responsible for that income and handing it out to other people, for example, um, women are often the conduit, as somebody has called it, for money going to children, it doesn't necessarily mean that you benefit from the income that you actually receive because you're meant to be handing it over to those children. So I think it's a bit of a problematic assumption. But it's another assumption to see uh, what uh, alternatives would uh, result in. Now, both of those, whether you do different assumptions or you lo only look at the income received by individuals, suggested greater inequalities within households and hidden poverty, particularly amongst women, than the usual statistics that we look at in terms of poverty um, uh, on a household basis. And a similar exercise was carried out by somebody called Sarah Cantillon and Brian Nolan. Brian now works at uh, this department and also um, in the Oxford Martin Institute. Um, and this similar exercise was carried out in terms of looking at individual non-monetary deprivation indicators. So if you look at people within a household and you don't look at the income, you look at other things uh, that they have, uh, which are um, uh, the ways in which they may be deprived as individuals, a similar kind of inequality was found between men and women uh, in particular, with women suffering greater deprivation. 
apart from two things which I always thought was interesting, they had they were more likely to have savings and they were more likely to give gifts to other people. <laughs> so I always thought it was quite interesting that that was uh, the only two were things which were different. Okay, the other thing that was looked at was the processes. So who does what uh, in terms of um, receiving income within the household and the outcomes of that in terms of welfare or well-being? Well, between that, of course, there's processes of control of money and processes of management of money and other resources, of course. I'm focusing on money today, but there's other resources within a household as well. And Jan Pahl's typology distinguished between strategic control of money and delegated management of money. So who actually controlled uh, the money overall and who actually was delegated to manage the money from day to day? And those things may not be the same person. And she divided the approaches that couples took between more joint approaches, so did you manage your money jointly, and more independent approaches, so did you manage your money as individuals. Increasingly in recent research, those distinctions have become more blurred, I think. And there are more people who would say they manage their money partially jointly and partially independently. She, she separated those quite a lot, but now I think they, most of the research suggests that's become more, more blurred. Another thing that was found uh, in terms of processes was that practices within couples remain remarkably stable over time. This is another thing my friends who came to supper identified with. Oh yes, we've always done it like that, was probably what they said. Um, uh, but there are some triggers for change in how you manage money, particularly <coughs> pre-marriage or new partnership. And the research tended to find that especially women who had new partners decided that they would do it differently next time. Um, and the money. <laughs> no. um, uh, and for older couples, um, some, some very interesting work here. Um, showing that serious incapacity was often a trigger for change in terms of how you manage the money within the household, whereas other things weren't necessarily. Even when, for example, um, the uh, man retired and uh, the woman hadn't, uh, they still arranged it so that he was giving her a housekeeping allowance, as he always used to do when he was in work. That was just one example. But people tended to try to maintain the same roles and relationships and behaviour that they had over time in this particular um, uh, uh, research on older couples, but serious incapacity disrupts that. Um, the other thing found is that in couples on low income, to particularly those with children, the woman is the person who tends to, not always, but tends to have responsibility for making the money stretch and for the costs involved in doing that in terms of um, uh, health and, uh, and mental stress. Um, and in one study which um, Ruth Lister was involved in, um, uh, some of the men tended to see the women's spending on family and household as equivalent to personal spending. Um, what about explanations for patterns of within-household distribution? Well, there are, there are kind of three major um, disciplines, I suppose, that have been looking at this. One is sociological, um, and that emphasises the power gained through a viable financial existence outside the relationship. Um, and or access to resources within it. So those things mean that you may have a greater say if either you can exit or you've got voice within the relationship, for example. Um, uh, another is the economists who've done models, of course, bargaining models in particular, um, including cooperative bargaining models. 
uh, where you try and reach an efficient solution together, although there's still room for conflict over resources in those models. And psychologists have also looked at this and talked about the complexities of love and conflict in close relationships in relation to other issues, but also financial. But contributions to the household, and this is Amartya Sen's work as an economist, contributions to the household may be seen differently. So different contributions to the household in terms of um, different forms of labour, for example, may confer differential rights of disposal or consumption on the partners uh, to whom that applies. And one of the things that's been said quite often is that there's an idea of your earnings belonging to you, and that that's in tension with the kind of sharing and caring ethos of coupledom, in particular, uh, of course, legal marriage. What about developments and debates recently? That was the other thing I looked at within the review article that I did. Well, first, first of all, questioning of typologies. So Jan Pahl had done this typology of ways of controlling and managing money, and that started to be questioned more, uh, perhaps not surprisingly, after more than 20 years. Um, and one thing was, well, if you say you jointly manage the money and you uh, have a joint bank account, how joint does that really mean? Is that always joint? Should it be seen as uh, less joint than it sounds? And the other questioning, which included the psychologist, was should we really focus on the decision-making moment? Often in the big surveys, people said, who makes the decision about whether you buy a car, for example? Or who makes the decision about whether you buy a washing machine? Um, and things like that. And actually people started saying, well, is it the decision-making moment that's the crucial thing? Or is it this routinization over time, which actually becomes a habit? Um, so that was emphasised more. The other thing that was emphasised more was performance. There's something called doing couple. Actually, it started off as doing gender, I think. Um, Westerbrook and somebody, I can't remember. Um, and uh, they applied that to um, uh, couples' relationships with money as well. So what it means is that you, um, that, that, that it's really linked to gender identity. So it's, it's, it's kind of a performance. You, you expect, you think this is expected of you in terms of a particular role. Um, and you think it is expected of you that couples behave in certain ways uh, about money and that that might influence how you actually do things. Um, the other thing is there's been developments in the unit of analysis. So most research up to then was done on married working age couples, often with children, not always, and that's now been extended um, to research on elderly couples, which I just talked about, um, cohabitees rather than just married people, uh, remarried or repartnered couples, same-sex couples, living apart together couples, and so on. Um, my own view is that there's been insufficient investigation of the roles of men and the roles of children. Um, and one person is now, uh, Jill Main, I think, is now going to do some investigation of what role children have in the uh, control and management of al and allocation of money within the household, um, which will be interesting. Um, but there also hasn't been, there's been more interviewing of women than men. Um, we actually interviewed women and men separately in our couples, but there's been generally more interviewing of women about this than men, in my view. Um, the other thing is that the um, research has found, has, has become more complex and nuanced, really. Um, so, for example, as I said, repartnering people may want new patterns uh, of how you manage and control money. Um, they may also have layered responsibilities, so it's not just about um, how you use resources for the people in your current household, 
But what about people in your previous household? And you may both have previous households as well. And so the, uh, the way in which you control and manage money becomes much more complex. Um, and some work by Jane Lewis, which I'll mention again in a minute, um, showed that some separateness uh, of um, uh, resources can facilitate commitment rather than working against it. So if you had some degree of independence, that might actually mean that you were more willing to commit yourself to a relationship, perhaps because there was less risk involved. Another thing that's been questioned is what's the issue of concern? Are we really talking about equality of outcome here? Is that what we're concerned about? Welfare or well-being? Or are we concerned about the ability to exercise agency? And one of the um, particularly striking findings I found when looking at this was a piece of research in Sweden, not surprisingly perhaps, where some women were definitely preferring having a lower living standard themselves to depending on their partner. And that gives you pause for thought, I think. So they were preferring to have agency over resources um, rather than having a higher living standard that they could have done had they depended on their partners more. Quite interesting, I thought, and something we might want to discuss. Um, now, sometimes equality is seen as um, what's sometimes called equity. So, for example, you've got a couple and um, they one earns more than the other, but their arrangement is that they make equal contributions to bills. And that's quite common, and it's quite common amongst uh, young couples nowadays, without children in particular. Um, and that can disadvantage the lower earner, obviously, because they pay more as a percentage of their income, if you like, to um, the bills. However, and this has particularly come through, in, interestingly, in research on same-sex couples, it's hard to avoid the drop in status of feeling that you're being paid for if you don't do it that way. So there are conflicts, there are tensions, whichever way you do it, if you like. And these are also complex issues which are discussed in a situation where the ideals that you might have of equality and autonomy uh, are, of course, in tension with the kinds of circumstances that couples live in. And the other thing is that drawing clear causal links, which we found very much in our own project, between the policy change and the impact on who controls resources or benefits from them or both is actually often hard to distinguish. Okay, that was the overview. So that was a review of, um, uh, of this kind of work, which I did for Journal of Marriage and Family. I wanted to say a bit about the qualitative research with low to middle in moderate income couples that we did under the Within Household, and Inequality, Within Household Inequalities and Public Policy Project. The aim of the whole project was to show the need for gender inequalities within households to be taken into account for the assessment of policies or welfare reforms and in future possibly for policies as well. And the qualitative element which Sirin and I did were individual, separate, semi-structured interviews with men and women in 30 low to moderate income couples in Britain. Now most of those people, sorry. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah. Could you define what you mean by low to moderate income? Most, I, I, you'll get there. Yeah. No, no, don't worry. We didn't do an income test. It's a very important question. It's a very good question. And we didn't do an income test. And it was a bit fuzzy, to be absolutely honest. Um, so most of, were either on means tested benefits or tax credits at the time. Uh, and I put and or in the past because some of them had just come off them. Um, but you'll see how we got them uh, in a minute. But it's a very good question because we didn't say what is your income deliberately. And so it is a bit fuzzy. 
which is why we put low to moderate income, because um, it wasn't entirely scientific to just say low income at all. Um, they'd all had children at some point, so they either had dependent children at the moment or they'd had them in the past. Um, they were all white, which was not a deliberate choice. Um, and they were almost all married. We had some cohabitees. We got them from the British National Panel Survey, which is the longitudinal survey which has now been phased out. Um, and it was a kind of add-on group. And uh, they were people who said they were prepared to be interviewed about other things as well. And we had incredibly helpful cooperation from the person responsible for the survey. And it was in the mid to late 2000s. So I'm not going to go into what we did in great detail, but just the findings for interest. So this was very, very striking. There was a deep loyalty to togetherness in finances. So there we were trying to see about gender inequalities and trying to see about differences between men and women. And they were all saying, all in one pot. That's, our, that's how we do our finances, all in one pot. And Robert is somebody I have learned from in research that something that is surprising to you in research is really, really important, and you need to make sure you take that on board. Um, so that was very interesting, that we found all in one pot was a very, very common phrase amongst our interviewees about how they dealt with money. But it is fair to say that the women were more aware of the kind of tensions and issues of autonomy um, versus uh, cooperation together. Um, the one, another thing we found was that joint accounts don't necessarily, so this backs up what I was saying before, joint accounts don't necessarily result in joint management of finances or equal access for both partners. Just because you have a joint bank account doesn't necessarily mean that all is equal and joint. Um, and the women were more likely to have individual accounts than the men. Uh, men could just have the joint bank account, but women were more likely to have individual accounts. With benefits often paid into those, and the last two here I've got a few quotes about. Um, so the joint accounts point, I think it's a good thing, says this man, because it shows a trust between you, really. That was quite a common, quite a common phrase. Um, another one, a woman, Kevin does. In other words, he manages the joint account. I never do. No, I never do. I could if I wanted to, but I wouldn't. Another man says, I think it's more trust, you know, that the two of us have the same account. I'd prefer a joint account. The wife's the one that manages it, basically. So it wasn't always. I mean, it could be either the man or the woman that managed the joint account. And this bit about women being more likely to have individual accounts. Billy's not very good with money. These are all obviously anonymous and made-up names, sorry. Billy's not very good with money. So I think that's one of the major factors in us not having a joint account. But I do prefer to have my own account. I don't like it when you have a joint account. You normally have to discuss what you want to spend the money on. And I like to have my own money that I can go out and I don't have to justify what I'm spending it on. This was a man who, when they had got together, he had had quite a lot of debt. Um, uh, so that was, that's quite an interesting one. Jackie Good, if you ever read about this, Jackie Good is somebody who's done incredibly interesting work, I think, on uh, couples with, uh, in particular, in relation to debt uh, and these money issues. Um, benefits were often paid into the individual accounts, as I said. This one said, we have individual accounts, my husband's money gets paid into his account, and then the benefits we get are paid into my account. That was a couple where she was on carer's allowance. Uh, they had two <coughs> autistic children. Um, some of our findings on second earners and independent income, you probably know the phrase second earners, so there's a main earner and then there's a second earner uh, in a couple who doesn't earn as much, uh, often the woman, not always. Um, so our findings were that women valued independent income, uh, either through their own wage or their own benefits. 
Um, they said it was likely to mean they had more of a say in financial decisions. They could maintain separate finances if they wished to. They didn't necessarily do that. They said they didn't have to regularly ask for money from their partner. They didn't necessarily have to justify their personal spending. Uh, and those findings are supported by similar evidence from other people. So here are some quotes on these things. I do like a bit of independence. The only income that I see in my own right is the money I earn. Didn't have to regularly ask for money. I've got that little bit of money there that I can do what I want with and I don't have to keep asking my husband. Amazing um, uh, Jehovah's Witness couple they were. Um, money being your own to spend, personal spending. The carer's allowance I get, that's the only money I've got anyway. This is the same one. And I would use that rather than use out of the joint bank account. Another one on carer's allowance. Only mine, I wouldn't dare to dream of spending his. We did find some couples where there was obviously quite a tense relationship about money. Uh, not all of them by any means, but that was one of them. What about payment? Well, our findings was there was a persistence of, persistence of traditional gender roles amongst many couples about how you manage the money, um, as well as earnings. Um, the women in our sample were more likely to manage the budget, particularly when it was a low-income one. They were more likely to be responsible for child-related costs, like childcare, uh, or the things that children needed from day to day. And they were more likely to buy items that needed to be purchased more frequently, like daily or weekly. The milk, the bread, things like that. Um, we also found that the label, I don't know why this is blue, but we also found that the labelling of income sources shaped both perceptions and allocation of financial resources. So if something was called child tax credit, it was treated differently from other income. If it was called housing benefit, it was treated differently from other income. And that's, again, supported by similar evidence from other qualitative research. So here's a lovely example of traditional gender roles in money management. This was my favourite example in the whole research. So this was a couple where the man was a weekly manual worker, weekly paid manual worker, and the woman was a monthly paid white collar worker. Okay? Um, they didn't have a joint account. They'd been married many years, but they didn't have a joint account. They had tried to keep their own money separate, and it just hadn't worked because of the work, what they did within the household in terms of money. Because, as he said, my wages go into Emma's bank, and Emma's wages go into my bank. The simple reason being because Emma is paid monthly, and that pays the bills. That stops in the bank and pays all the direct debits. I get paid weekly, and Emma does the shopping. So basically, he does the direct debits. A very, very common finding of ours. The bloke does the direct debit for the monthly bills, okay? So this, this is what happened in this household. I get paid weekly, and Emma does the shopping, and we find it works a lot better like that. So this means that the gendered money management and spending roles were more important than the individual ownership of their earnings, clearly, to this couple. And so they swapped. So they swapped wages, okay? And you can, as I understand it, get either your wages or your benefit paid into any account you want. So your wages can be paid into your partner's account if you want that, and that's what they did. And here's the importance of labelling, which I also mentioned. Yes, yes, because after all, child benefit is for the children, isn't it? Not for us. So it was quite important it was labelled as being for the children for many people. Okay, last bit, which is about the application of our qualitative research to looking at a new policy proposal by the government for something called universal credit, which um, it's 
probable that most of you have heard of because it's been in the news quite a lot because it's been delayed so many times. I wasn't actually going to go into detail on universal credit. We can talk about it if you want to in the discussion. Um, just to say that it is not universal, it is means tested. So in my view, universal is a, is a, a misnomer there. I think what the government means by universal is comprehensive. In other words, it's going to be applying to lots of different people in lots of different situations, which is certainly the case. Um, and what it is really is a super means-tested benefit, which is going to replace, I say bring together, but the government always crosses that out in things I write, and they say replace, um, uh, six means-tested benefits and tax credits. Okay? Not everything. It's not replacing... Uh, benefits which are not means-tested. It's not replacing council tax benefit, because that's now being dealt with differently. But it is replacing six different means-tested and tax credits, benefits and tax credits, which are all being brought together into one. It's going to be paid monthly. If you're a couple, you have to make a joint claim. It will probably have conditions attached for most people in terms of looking for work and things like that, although differently depending on your situation. And it will be paid monthly into one account in arrears. So all your benefits are put together as universal credit. They're paid monthly in arrears into one account that if you're a couple, you choose which account that is. All right? So that's just setting the scene for you. We can talk about other. And, it, and you can have it in work as well, and it gets withdrawn gradually as you earn more. Okay? Well, not gradually, quite quickly, actually, as you earn more. Um, but that's, that's just setting the scene for you. So what are the implications of the kind of research that Surin and I did for this kind of scheme being brought in? That's what we wanted to try to see and what we wrote a couple of articles about. Um, so the first thing is universal credit needs to work for couples in different kinds of relationships. And we had interviewed couples in very different kinds of relationships. Some that were very cooperative, some that were quite separate, some that were actually intentional. Uh, some that were new, some that were old, some that were repartnered, and so on. It needs to work for couples in all sorts of relationships. The other thing is that you know as a credit you have to have a joint claim. Both of you have to sign a claimant commitment, which is to do with your conditionality. You both have responsibility for reporting changes of circumstances, and it's all paid in one lump sum monthly into one account. It's very, very joint. Okay, the whole thing is very joint. So it kind of gives an all or nothing quality. Now, our question was, does that create a couple penalty? So you'll remember that I said about some separateness, perhaps giving uh, an incentive to make a commitment because it's, no, it's not as risky to make a commitment if you have some resources of your own. Well, is that going to be the case if you're a lone parent, for example, you get together with a new bloke, you're in a council house, the um, rent is in your name, you claim universal credit, he's unemployed, which of you is going to get all the money? One of you has got to get all the money. For you, for the children that you had by a different bloke. So either you get it, and so he comes and lives with you, and that means he's got nothing. Or he's going to get it, so he gets the money for your kids and your housing. Yeah? It could go in a joint account, but quite often people don't create a joint account actually until after they've lived together for a bit. I don't know whether other people think that, but yeah, it could go in a joint account. Um, so the potential problems with the jointness of 
universal credit are not really discussed in the government's equality impact assessment. They had to do an equality impact assessment to show the impact on gender issues. Um, and they don't really recognise, they do recognise, sorry, they do recognise that the assumption of equal sharing is not necessarily uh, correct all the time and that that has gender implications. So they do say that, uh, but they don't necessarily take into account these other things about jointness. And therefore, the potential effects on the autonomy and financial security of men and women, in our view, were not sufficiently addressed. In terms of second earners and independent incomes, which I talked a bit about as well, what we found was that the choices which people said they were exercising jointly were often gendered choices, and that's partly because of the things inside the household, but it's also partly because of the situation outside the household. So the fact that you are um, seen as having different roles and responsibilities because of being different sexes uh, were uh, often meant that those choices were um, gendered. And they weren't necessarily made equally or with equal impact. And there's a patchy recognition of that in the equality impact assessment. So, for example, the government suggests in the equality impact assessment that if universal credit reduces a second earner's incentives to go out to work, sorry, the potential second earner's incentives to go out to work, and gives the main earner the ability, of an improved ability to maintain the family because for some people universal credit would actually be more generous, the family's choices, the government says, about work-life balance are increased. It didn't quite, it seemed to us that it was tilting the choices rather. But, um, and there's no problematising of the specialisation of gender roles in the government's equality impact assessment. In fact, they largely look at single people, men and women, and also at couples. They don't tend to look within couples at all. The problems of worklessness and work-life balance tend to be seen at a household level rather than an individual level. The government says the proposals are gender neutral and what they mean by that is that if women and men are in the same position, they're treated the same. Well, the problem is quite often they're not in the same position. Um, and uh, in our view, that ignored the effect on inequalities in the household now and also in the longer term, because if you have an impact on the potential second earner's incentives to go out to work, then that may have a longer term impact on their income. What about the payment? So I've described the payment to you. Monthly, in arrears, all paid in one, into one account. It's not clear to us what couples will choose, which partner or account they'll go to. It could be the joint account, it could be the man's account, it could be the woman's account. Uh, of course, this also applies to same-sex couples who are in the same kind of situation. Uh, so it could be a joint account or an individual's account. Um, because of women's responsibility for the more frequent payments, they're more likely to be affected by the less frequent payment uh, that's uh, under universal credit because it's only once a month. And the other thing is that the lack of splitting of universal credit, so everything is put together, and the lack of labelling of different bits may mean, not sure, but the money is less likely to be spent on, for example, children or housing. So you'll no longer know which bit of your universal credit is child tax credit, for example. And you'll no longer know which bit of it is meant for childcare expenses. And you'll no longer know which bit of it is meant for their housing to pay the rent. Um, the other thing that we concluded from the equality impact assessment was that economic dependence within the family is not really an issue for government. Um, the most important thing for the government, and universal credit's overriding aim, I would say, or one of its overriding aims, is to encourage independence of the state. 
So the idea is that you have an earnings target, and that's joint as a couple, to get you off universal credit. And that's part of the thinking behind universal credit. Um, and that isn't about individual independence, it's about um, independence from the state. Um, and the uh, imperative in universal credit is mirroring work. So the government is trying to say, even when you're on benefit and out of work, if you're on universal credit, it will be like an experience of work. In fact, I've even heard them say, the government will be your employer if you're on benefit. So you will have a contract with us, a claimant commitment, you will have to sign on, um, you will have to look for work, and including when you're in work, you will continue to have that commitment until you've earned enough to get off uh, universal credit. Okay, so they say that the government is going to be like your employer and um, that being on, on universal credit is meant to be like being in work. So the government thinks that being in work is that you get one payment once a month of your wages. Okay? Now, for a couple, as we've just seen in my example, that's not necessarily the case. You may get two payments because both of you earn for a start and one of you, quite often, even these days, is actually paid... Uh, weekly, particularly those people on low incomes who are likely to be on universal credit. So actually this vision of what work is like, which is once a month salary, is not necessarily the case. And of course now, quite a lot of those people on low incomes also get benefit. You know, they get child benefit on a certain date, and they get housing benefit on another date, and so on. Uh, and many couples have two earners, as I said. Um, and the government hasn't really considered the makeup or the labelling of payments. Okay, conclusions. Uh, just slightly late, but not much. Um, okay, so I would argue that if we go inside the black box of the family, it reveals the complexities of couples' relationships to resources. And that was done, I hope, through the review article I did, through the overview of research by others into the topic. Uh, our own qualitative research with men and women resulted in nuanced and often surprising findings um, through conducting that. Um, and I hope it was of relevance to topical policy through the implications, drawing out the implications for universal credit. And we did that in uh, a couple of academic articles. I also did it separately in the kind of way that Robert said at the beginning through uh, my membership of the Women's Budget Group in particular, which does uh, analysis of budgets and spending. Um, and I think, I would argue, uh, this is not my argument, it's Deborah Price's who did the research on older people, um, but she argues that if we have a concern for the welfare of everybody within the household, we have to go on investigating this key issue. Thank you very much.